Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. There's a story in your voice And in the way you say goodnight It leaves me wanting more It lingers in my mind Lingers in my mind so ideally, all of our shows are passion projects. I, they kind of are. But I think this one in particular is one that's kind of grown into that. Lily Tyson, our senior producer, first proposed this idea that we do a show about the short story, about short stories. And as we've worked on it, and we've worked on it for quite a few weeks now, one of the things we decided to do right away is change the form of our own show episode so that it would be in shorter segments. So instead of three longer segments, we have five different segments here today. Uh, and... I also just want to say that, you know, I mean, well, we're going to talk a lot about sort of why people either do or don't read short stories. But when you make an affirmative decision to read short stories, you notice – I spent one day just reading short stories and it was – like a novel is really like a, a river cruise down a long winding river. And reading a whole bunch of different short stories, especially by different writers – it's like going to an amusement park and going on like 10 rides and then going, wow, what was that? I mean, you really do feel almost a little disoriented by all those uh, different perspectives. So um, there's much more to say about it, but I shouldn't be the one talking. The person talking should be the person who got us into this whole mess to begin with, and that would be Rebecca Mackay, author of the Pulitzer Prize and National Book Award finalist, The Great Believers, among other books. Her newest book is I Have Some Questions for You. She's artistic director of Story Studio Chicago, but most relevantly to our cause. Uh, she wrote on her Substack a post that was seen by Lily Tyson. Uh, it was called Why You Aren't Reading Short Stories and wh how, Why You Should and How You Can and What It Is To. Uh, and she's joining us now. Hi, Rebecca. Hi. So talk a little bit about this. You kind of threw down a gauntlet, at least to those people who read and or share your Substack and saying, you know, why aren't you doing this and here's why you should. I don't know. Make, make that argument. 
Yeah. And, and to be clear, I think I'm really talking to people who are already readers, right? Um, it would be a different argument to make to people who don't read voluntarily. They don't read fiction and, and you're starting from scratch. But I'm talking to people who are serious readers. Maybe they're in book clubs. Maybe they read every day. They always pick up a novel. They never pick up a short story. And, you know, my Substack uh, kind of went into two things. It went into why people tend not to read them and also why they should. You know, I could go on at length about either one of those, but the the why people tend not to, uh, I think there are several several good theories out there. One of them, a big part of it, is I think short stories are hard to talk about. It's hard, uh, you know, to walk into a bookstore. It's hard, it's hard for a bookseller to recommend a story collection that's about 10 different things instead of having one big hook. It's hard to say, oh my God, I read the most amazing thing. You have to read it. And it's a short story collection or it's one short story. And then there's the why you should. And, and again, you know, I can get into 75 reasons why. Uh, but one of them, just to pick one, is that you're missing, if you only read novels, you're missing some of the edges of experimentation of what any writer can do. And I don't mean something completely wackadoo, but you know, you can have a short story that is uh, that's entirely written like an interview or a short story that is takes on magical realism in a certain way or a short story that has just a different format that you wouldn't want to read for 300 pages. Uh, and if you're only reading novels, you're missing all of that. Yeah, I think also, just to go back to the first thing about why people don't, uh, one of the reasons you cite is one that I concur with, which is that sometimes our introduction to short stories are in the form of things that we were being forced to read or forced to pretend yeah. that we had read in middle school. And there'd be this anthology and it would have like Paul's case and the rocking horse winner, in which that kid is named Paul, too. It's amazing anybody named their kid Paul for about 20 years because these are very disturbing stories. But there was this kind of thing, oh, yeah, this is good for you, and you have to read it, and then you have to write a response. You know, and it's just th – there's yeah. something numbing about that whole idea that you're going to read another Catherine Ann Porter story. And I, I, I don't know. It, it's not presented to us the right way. No, I agree. The you know I think short stories are easy to, to teach. They are approachable. They're bite-sized. You can talk about the whole thing. I love teaching them to my graduate students, for instance, but of course they're in it because uh, they're often writing short stories themselves. But then there's this deadening of what happens on the page that that some English teachers, some literature teachers do of, you know, please list the themes. Let's talk about, you know, what this means, find the symbols instead of reveling in it, instead of enjoying it. And, you know, certainly there's a way to dissect it and enjoy it at the same time, but it's a little bit of that Mark Twain, you know, if you if you explain a joke, it's like dissecting a frog. You figure it out, but you kill the frog. So we're we're killing the frogs constantly for kids, for for teenagers. And then you see a short story and you go, oof. And of course, the ones like you're naming, the ones that get into those textbooks, they tend to be maybe a little older, a little stodgier, unless it's a newer, more responsible anthology, tended to be largely by men, tended to be very white. And that's just not going to appeal to everybody. Yeah, I think another thing, too, is they, they don't get associated with the idea of any real sweep, right? There's a sense that it can't really 
be about something big or – and one thing that I think should be a rule. I don't know how I would enforce this rule. But movies that are based on short stories, they should be like really labeled like that. <laughs> like Brokeback Mountain, based on a short story by any group. Yes. Uh, a, a, rear Window. Yeah. Uh, rear Window. Yeah, by, yes, yeah, absolutely. A rival short story by Ted Chang, who's going to be mentioned uh-huh. elsewhere in the story. Yeah, you mentioned Rear Window, Minority Report. Philip K. Dick stories tend to get just made into movies. And on and on and on. So that's kind of an indication that these things, you know, there, there's a, a lot of meat on these in this very small bunch of bird bones there. Uh, and and um, people should be a little bit more aware of that. But then the next question is how – what's the on-ramp? Like how – let's say you can sort of get somebody interested in this. Then, then what happens? Yeah. So, you know, picking up an entire short story collection is a good idea if you know and love the author. And you go, okay, I, I want to see what else they wrote. Um, it's it's always, even for me, you know, I have four novels and a story collection. And I'll get readers all the time who are like, I've read all of your books. We'll accept the short story collection, of course. But anyway, <laughs> come on, man. But if you know you like my writing, just pick it up. Um, but if you know you like a writer, that's one way. I would recommend two different uh, entry points. One would be the Best American Short Stories Anthology, which is put out every year guest editor each time. So the tastes vary a little, but they're they're pulling um, about 15 stories that were published that year in American magazines, literary journals, etc. And, you know, you're going to read through it. You're going to love some, hate some, like some. You look through the back, you see who these authors are. They're little essays each one does about the story. And you start to figure out what you like and what you don't like. Maybe you like really speculative short stories. Maybe you like really realistic ones. That's one way. The other thing is I really recommend the Selected Shorts podcast put out by PRI, Public Radio International. And um, you can get that on your phone. Uh, You can get it on some NPR stations where Meg Wallitzer, who's an amazing writer, is curating every week two or three short stories read, usually read on stage by professional actors, very often at Symphony Space in New York. I'm someone I had a a uh, hard time adjusting to audiobooks early on but but that was easy for me you have a, a actor reading to a live audience they're really listenable and again you discover a new writer you follow their work you see what you like and you discover that it's not all the rocking horse winner it's not you know your third grade teacher your ninth grade teacher isn't still breathing down your neck you discover um you know there's a there's a level of humor i think sometimes too that's possible in a short story that if we stretched it out over a whole novel, you just wouldn't believe it anymore. But there's something there, there's a there's a joy in in so many of these that people are missing out on if they don't do that. All right. Well, Rebecca Mackay, your Substack started this whole thing. Uh, author of The Great Believers, and I have some questions for you. That's the next Rebe- Rebecca Mackay book I'm going to read. Artistic director of Story Studio Chicago. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. He's not going to like it if I say this, but if there's kind of a superstar in the world of short stories these days, it's George Saunders. Uh, and he has, he's won a MacArthur Genius Grant. He's won a Guggenheim. It was a crazy Guggenheim. It wasn't the other kind of Guggenheim, but still a Guggenheim, a Booker Prize. And I think he was MVP of the NBA one year. A lot of prizes. Uh, George Saunders is the author of 12 books. His most recent is Liberation Day, a collection of short stories. He's also a professor in the creative writing program at Syracuse University. Um, first of all, welcome to our conversation. 
Oh, thanks for having me. And actually, I love all that you said. You can just keep saying that. That works for me. All right. Yeah, you can just use it as a tape and just kind of loop it, you know, and listen over and over again <laughs> uh, when you're feeling bad about yourself. So, um, <laughs> so, like most of the people that we're talking about and talking to on this show, uh, you don't just write short stories. You write in other forms. You write novels. But there's some way in which the short story is kind of – your Yo-Yo Ma's cello. This is the thing that you just play very, very well. Can you talk about sort of what draws you to it, what the virtues are that attract you? Yeah, you know, actually, I think the main thing is its DNA is is somehow in sync with my my natural kind of pace. So if I if I try to tell a story and prolong it, it just gets boring. <laughs> but if I say, okay, this story is like a wind-up toy. I'm going to wind it up real tight, put it on the floor, and try to get it to go under the couch as fast as possible. Then somehow, um, <laughs> in in the moment, I know what to do. You know, I, I say, okay, if, if the goal is to pack a punch really quickly, uh, I feel pretty confident. So it's really, you know, I think in a certain way, as an artist, you're kind of looking for that form that causes you to be at your best. And for me, that kind of, you know, eight to 20 page uh, constraint is really enlivening somehow. You know, there's a way in, in which, and this kind of does carry over from Rebecca, there's a way in which certain ideas are ideas that I think you can sustain a relationship with the reader about for eight to 20 pages. But I mean, Liberation Day, for example, is really, really fascinating and dark and, and dystopian and I, you know, just it's enthralling. I would not want to spend too much more time <laughs> with that particular set of ideas right. than and, yeah, and maybe join, as a writer, you don't either. Club. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Join the club. I, I think I think the other part, I mean, a, a different way of saying just what you're saying, Colin, is that the um, sometimes the story lets you get into a realm where you actually couldn't sustain a realistic narrative for for 200 pages. In other words, there's a strange concept that's worth examining that somehow cuts through to some deeper truth of life that because of its weirdness, because of its weird sort of assumptions, really couldn't be sustained. But it's almost like having a, a, a hallucination. You know, you don't want to live in a hallucinatory state, but sometimes in that state, you do get certain insights. So I've, I've had that feeling with that story that you mentioned. Sometimes if you if I try to prolong it and make it kind of more rational, the bottom would drop out of it. But I'd contend that one of the things the story does really well is it lets us look intensely and with a, an exaggerated level of honesty at the reality we live in. And as you're suggesting, we might not want to sustain or we, we might not want to exist in that state of honesty for too long. But I think it's good for us to be in it every now and then. So one of your other books is A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, in which four Russians give a master class on writing, reading, and life. There's a way in which the Russians, they're really, really good at short stories. And maybe it's because their fingers get cold if they try to write much longer uh, or, or something. But there's a way in which Chuck, I, I should say the Friday episode of my show is called The Nose. And it's called The Nose because of Gogol, although nobody knows that mm -hmm. except, except you do now. But there's a way in which... In the case of something as absurdist as that, and that's a short story about, for people who don't know, about a guy whose nose kind of acquires a life of its own and starts going out and doing things. Um, once again, you, you can't make it a novel, but there's also just a way that you can startle somebody with something like that. And, but why are the Russians so good at this kind of thing? I don't know. I think it's because at that particular time in history, literature 
was it. You know, if you were a talented young person with that artistic aspirations, there were no movies to make. There were no, you know, records to make. And I think the sort of the cream and crop of the crop was attracted to that. And um, but I, I also think that, you know, the 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 short story, it, it has this this beautiful advantage of being able to be in a truthful space where it doesn't have any sort of agenda, uh, but to kind of rock your world. And so it doesn't have to be 300 pages. It doesn't have to subscribe to you know any realist notions. And as in the Google story you're talking about, um, you get the feeling that that the writer sometimes just gets a glimpse of something true through the kind of you know um, everyday feeling that we live in. He he gets a a glimpse of some deep truth and just goes for it. And um, it's kind of you know I think it's kind of sacramental. It's kind of almost mystical in that way. It's not really a rational form. Lots of exaggeration, lots of compression, lots of omission. But when you read a great one. You come out of it feeling like, yeah, that's that's what my life actually feels like when I put aside the conventional and the habitual and the kind of you know ways of thinking we have to be in just to get through a day. Uh, it's just like a little golden ray of truth that comes in very quickly, and then I, I've become really addicted to it and kind of you know rely on it as a way of resetting my basic common sense. You know, one writer whose work is sitting around uh, my house a lot these days, mainly because of my significant other, but now because of me too, and I know you've gone on kind of a jag with her, uh, is Claire Keegan. And there's a way mm. in which uh, Claire Keegan's the, this Irish writer. A lot of her stories are, take place in kind of rural Ireland, although not all of them. Um, and there's a way also, I mean, not that, you know, Flaubert didn't linger over every comma and stuff like that, but there's just a way in which every Claire Keegan sentence, you know, every single word seems to be right in its place. There isn't a better word somebody else could have thought of. And, and I, that seems a little truer of the short story too, right? You really, there's no excuse really for not writing a, one great sentence after another. No, that's right. And, you know, my my sort of, you know, tortured experience of being a writer of stories is you're, you're there with your eight pages and you're 100% responsible for every phrase in there. And because of the, the, the brevity, yeah, it's kind of expected that you will have gone over it and over it. And that, uh, like in a poem, you know, every breath is, is uh, since every breath has the potential to be meaningful, then it's kind of your job to make sure that it is, you know. Now, if somebody writes an 800 page novel, I suppose as a reader, you're kind of more inclined to let some slop go by. But if I offer an eight page story to you, I, I really feel like I'm saying, OK, I'm going to take up your time here, but not very much time. And I promise you, I've been down the road before us, you know, thousands of times before I'm letting you in. I'm, I've, I've investigated different plot turns. I've investigated different ways of saying things. I've, you know, sought out these little moments of humor or illumination. And in a sense, it's kind of, an, you know, in the, in the best case, it's an elaborate act of courtesy from the writer to the reader. So I'm saying, Colin, I don't really know you. But I respect you in advance, which is why I spent three years on these eight pages, you know, so that you'll have a nice time with it. And I love that. I love that as a, you know, kind of a, an act of respect and an act of of, of communication. I, I I find it almost like a, it's just a useful, almost like spiritual state of mind to get into for a few hours a day is to prepare the way for this stranger that you don't know, but that you that you kind of love and respect. So uh, since I am one of those strangers, I, I have another, um, another, another virtue 
possibly one of the very few virtues of the short story that you yourself have not considered. But feel free to adopt it because it has just an exquisiteness that you will not be able to resist. And that is uh, traffic alertness. So, and what I mean by this, and my specific example involves you. Uh, I, in December, went into, I live in Hartford, Connecticut. I went into New York to see the new Stoppard play. And then I'm coming back. It's a long drive. It's nighttime. And, and I've got the Liberation Day stories on. And, you know, if you're listening to an audiobook novel, I don't know, you can start to get a little distracted and, and you can realize that quite a bit has gone by and you were just thinking about something else. Or you, if you're driving, you're thinking, was that the exit I was supposed to take? That looks like a big backup over there. Maybe I shouldn't even be in that lane. Um, but I did notice with Liberation Day, well, at minimum, I would think, wait a minute, Tina Fey is talking. <laughs> no, what happened to Michael McKean? I obviously didn't pay. No, th the reality is that there's a way in which because of the shortness of the form and the fact that you know, with a writer like you, the style of the story shifts pretty dramatically. One of your stories mm -hmm. tends not to be very much like the one that preceded it. And so there is a way in which, you know, there's even if you're not doing an audiobook, even if you're just sitting there reading, you can sort of drift a little bit with a novel, even a pretty good novel. But I think like a short story is kind of yanking you back into things. No, I love that. I think that's exactly right. And that's, you know, that's kind of the um, the mantra in my head as I'm working on them is, and, you know, this gets into psychological territory, but I don't like the idea of somebody drifting off. And I feel like if they drift off, they're probably right. You know, so <laughs> so I internalized a pretty, um, you know, pretty generous, but at the same time, pretty tough reader who who wants to be compelled. And so, you know, in, in practice, you, what you're doing is you're you're working on something day after day. And then you notice that a certain part of it is a little bit lazy or fallow or habitual that's kind of exciting because that means that your mind has just cranked out something that's not at the very top of its register. You, you know, your own reaction in reading it has told you, has just told you that. So that gives you a, this amazing opportunity to say, okay, is there anything better that I could find there? And if you do, it will produce the kind of moments you're talking about where the, you know, the reader, you know, as, as readers, as, as writers, probably as people, we, we like autopilot and a good story will kind of constantly forbid you to go on autopilot as as a reader for sure and those little moments of startle are kind of where your mind says yeah 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 i got it and i the writer say no you don't got it you know i'm 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 redirecting uh but as a writer it's really interesting too you know you of course you you crank out a bunch of crap you know a lot, a lot of habitual stuff kind of lazy stuff and if you catch yourself doing that it's a chance for you to sort of put your best foot forward again you know, over and over and over again over the many months of writing something. So I, I love it. And I, it's getting more and more enjoyable as I get older, you know. That's that's a nice, to thing to be able to, yeah, that's a nice thing to be able to say about the thing that you're doing. Not everybody feels yeah. that way. Uh, all right. So we're going to have to stop there. George Saunders, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank And thank you for taking up this, this subject, Colin. It's wonderful. So that was George Saunders. Uh, we will be back with more conversations about short stories after this. You know, one of the things that occurred to me is we're doing the show during the summer uh, and uh, there's sort of this kind of tacit understanding 
or maybe not so tacit understanding that what you're supposed to do in the summer is get a 350-page book and drag it down to the beach with your lawn chair and read that. You're supposed to read that novel. You know, and it all strikes me that actually those are the worst circumstances under which to try to, you know, read a novel when you have sort of visual and oral distractions around you and you got sun gunk all over everything and (laughs) birds landing next to you. So joining us now is Deborah Treisman, who is the fiction editor for The New Yorker, uh, the host of their excellent fiction podcast. Uh, She is responsible uh, for the short fiction that you read in The New Yorker, which would be a much easier thing to do. Like, you know, Deborah, right around the time you'd be interested in maybe going back in the water, taking a little dip, would be around the time you finished a short story. They're the perfect summer reading, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And perfect for reading while you're sitting on a train or a plane or pretty much anywhere. Also listening to. Yes. You know, people love to be read to. So so having audio versions of short stories is a, is a wonderful thing when you're cooking or driving. I want to talk to you a little bit about, I mean, first of all, how you see the form right now. I mean, and, and do you think the form of the short story changes much over the decades? I mean, are today's stories just logical extensions of Catherine Ann Porter or John Cheever, or is are other things going on? That's interesting because I would say automatically they don't it doesn't change very much. It's it's a narrative that, you know, you could read in anywhere from ten minutes to an hour. And you start off somewhere and you end up somewhere different in that narrative. That being said, I was recently rereading an anthology of New Yorker stories from nineteen twenty five to nineteen forty. And I was kind of stunned by how different the short story form was back then, at how it was shorter, for one. <laughs> <laughs> and really, the whole story was designed to get you to the end of the story. You know, you were being set up for a final moment. And most of the stories are relatively light. They're designed as entertainment. And I feel like that's not what we get in short stories these days. Right. I, I think, or what we can get anyway, has varies considerably. And maybe as an editor, you can talk a little bit about that too. I mean, the story recently that I've read in The New Yorker that haunted me uh, was by Paul Yoon. It was called Valley of the Moon. I know other people also who, you know, if you're reading short stories and you're kind of determinedly reading a lot of short stories, um, you know, you read one, you read another, you read another. This piece by Paul Yoon, which uh, is the story of a, a, a farmer at the end of the Korean War living in the mountains, there was something about that. It's hard. It would be hard for me to to put into words exactly what the story did to me, but it seemed very different from, say, you know, I don't know, a Joyce Carol Oates story. Yeah, I mean, every story is different. That story is is particularly about the the damage that can be done psychologically by war, by li- living through a war, even if you do live through it. And I, I feel as though each story that I read or that we publish here, you know, it, it has to have some kind of impact, and that impact could be. Uh, that it makes you laugh could be you know it could be pure entertainment or it could be that it makes you think um, that it poses an idea you haven't really explored before or it could be that it makes you cry you know I mean it's really like it's a it's a corny thing to say it'll make you laugh it'll make you cry but stories have an impact both through the meaning and through the beauty of the language and through the ideas behind them you know 
So maybe you can talk a little bit about editing short stories. This is a different world. You, you, there's no such thing as 70,000 words about whaling and whales. There's a, a way in which every word probably has to do some kind of a job. On the other hand, as the editor, you don't want to be all over that thing with a lead pencil. Um, talk, talk about what you do when, when you edit. Um, I feel as though what's really important in the short story is voice and sometimes the first draft has slightly buried the voice of the story. People people find a voice through writing. So often the beginning is a sort of exploration trying to reach that point of knowing what the story is and what it's about and who's telling it. And so I, I feel as though my job is both to be able to hear that voice of the story and to make it rise to the surface. Yeah, I like but that. Sometimes that takes a long time. Sometimes it takes a short time. You know, it's that that's always the goal, though. You know, one thing that I think has changed, you know, not that The New Yorker didn't have a diversity of voices, not that people didn't find writers like, you know, like James Baldwin through the pages of The New Yorker at times. But it feels like over the last five years, there's been a real effort made by a lot of publications and a lot of places and, and regional theaters and everything to just you know, diversify perspectives. And I feel that on any given week, I could be reading a story about a Korean farmer. I could be reading about you know any number of lived experiences that are nothing like my own as a white male in his late 60s living in the suburbs. And, and I don't know. Say a little bit about what, as an editor, that means for you, and what sort of a, you know opportunities maybe it, it also creates. Yeah, I, I suppose you know we certainly don't have any quotas. There's we're we're going to publish stories rather than writers. That's the goal is to publish good stories. So really, all all that matters is being open. I feel as though we're really open to different styles of writing, to different approaches, to different subject matter, and that leads to a kind of natural diversity, whether it's stylistic or whether it has to do with the with the ethnicity or nationality of the authors. There, we just try to really cover everything and, and publish the best in each form and each, you know, from each place. That is terrific. Deborah Treisman, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Of course, one of the things we wanted to do on this episode is talk to some short story writers. And one of my favorite short story writers is Amy Bloom. Amy Bloom is not strictly a short story writer, though. She's the author of four novels, three collections of short stories. Her most recent book is the memoir In Love. I will say, for purposes of full disclosure, that I, I know Amy Bloom a little bit. I have been I've played charades with her. We were on the same team. I think we did well that night. So Amy, I guess the first thing I want to ask you, particularly because you are kind of a, a multi-genre writer, is is there – do you sit down to say and say, I'm going to write a short story? Do you start thinking about uh, some scenes and characters and say, wow, is this a novel? Is it a short story? I mean, how does that whole process work? Well, you always hope that it'll be a short story. I mean, it's <laughs> – you know, it's, it's like you get into bed and you're – head's a little warm and your joints ache and you think, oh, is it a cold or is it the flu? And you hope <laughs> it's a cold. And that's sort of how I feel about novels and short stories. I hope it's not a novel. Sometimes it will get the better of you and it will turn out to be a novel, but I'm always hopeful that it's going to be a short story. That might actually explain what has happened with you and two of your characters, Lionel and Julia, <laughs> because they started out as one short story in one short story collection called Come to Me. 
And then the next thing you know, and I'm holding in my hand right now my personal copy of A Blind Man Can See How Much I Love You, here they come back again for two more short stories. So were they? did you think you were going to be able to keep them all penned up, all caged up in that one short story, and they kind of got loose in your head again? It is something like that. It's also that I love linked short stories. I think the first linked short stories I ever read, well, actually, there's some John O'Hara short stories that are linked and also a writer that I don't think people read anymore named Alice Adams. And she did wonderful collections of short stories. She did novels that were composed entirely of linked short stories in which multiple characters appeared, reappeared at different stages of their life. It's just a little structurally different than a novel in terms of the connective tissue. But I I do like it when the when the people come back. I also wonder about just I don't know how you strategize. And maybe strategize is the wrong word, but if you're writing a short story, you have to accomplish many things, often many things that could have been done in a novel, could have been spread out, but in fact they have to happen in a more telescoped way. And I notice even sometimes you'll begin in a way that sort of says here's where we're going or or maybe you can tell me a little bit more about how you think about beginnings but let me read one let me read you to you you wouldn't have known me a year ago a year ago i had a husband and my best friend was marjan at the post office in no time at all my husband had a final heart attack i got a new best friend and house prices tumbled in our part of connecticut i could go on from there but in a way you just sort of did part of a novel so you could get into your short story. But could you say a little bit about how you're thinking? How a short story begins is really important, I would assume. It is important because just as with a novel, you've got about five pages to get the reader interested. In a short story, you have about two paragraphs if you're lucky. So you always want to start strong. I, I feel like the great charm of a short story is that you are sort of going for the conciseness of poetry and the depth of a novel and moving it all along swiftly so that there is no room for a valley in a short story, unlike in a novel where anybody who writes a novel is inclined every once in a while for a digression. Oh, what I think about white versus brown rice, how I felt about the tech bubble bursting, whatever the hell it is that a writer is interested in, you can sort of squeeze in a little digression in a novel. You cannot in a short story. There's no wheat threshing. There's no meandering. It is everything that matters. I also want to talk a little bit about the end of short stories because I think one of the things that you do at the end of a short story sometimes is sort of say, yes, this story keeps going. I'm just done right now. I mean, the title story in that collection, A Blind Man Can See How Much I Love You, uh, these two people have come together under rather unusual circumstances in, in a medical setting involving the transitioning daughter uh, of, of one of the two characters, but they have an obvious uh, attraction to one another. It seems to be even more than that. And so the man says at the end, Dum spiro sparrow, that is the South Carolina motto, while I breathe, I hope. And she replies, well, I expect that will come in handy for us. And there's this whole sense of another 10 years, another 20 years, another whatever. But I don't know how, I guess maybe what I'm really asking you, Amy, is how do you know when you're done? I think if you're lucky, I mean, sometimes you don't know. Sometimes you're just sitting there and you're like, is it done? Does it need something else? Does it need a little of this or a little of that? Or what is it that I have 
missed. And that, that's never a good feeling. I think when it's done, you feel a certain kind of, you hear, actually, I hear, mm. a ping. It's like, uh, it's like the difference between, you know, snapping your finger against crystal or against plastic. Crystal has a distinctive sort of sound. And that's the kind of ping you look for. You're like, oh, this is good. This is a good place to stop. And stopping where you indicate there will be more doesn't seem to me like a bad idea. There is almost always more. Yes. I mean, that's very much how I feel about the end of that story. Uh, there's always more. All right. So uh, this is wonderful. Wonderful to talk to you. Our guest has been Amy Bloom, uh, the author of many, many short stories. And as I say, I'm holding in my hand right now her, her collection, A Blind Man Can See How Much I Love You. I'll recommend that one uh, to people. And Amy, thanks for spending some time with us today. Oh, it's a pleasure to talk about this. Thanks so much. So we're not done yet. We're going to take a little break here. And when we come back, we're going to do a close reading of one short story right after this. Time to say some thank yous. One of them goes to Kat Pastor, the technical producer of The Colin McEnroe Show. Lily Tyson, our senior producer, is also the producer of this episode. And when you get right down to it, the technical producer of several of the episodes. It's complicated. Anyway, one of the things we talked about doing as we prepared to do this show is taking two of our favorite regular guests on this show and having them read, along with me, one short story and then kind of break it down, just talk about it. So that's what's going to happen right now. The short story we picked is called How I Became a Vet by Rivka Galchin from the March 13th issue of The New Yorker. Joining us to do that uh, are two of our favorite regular guests. Irene Papoulis teaches Trinity or teaches writing at Trinity College, or she may teach Trinity at Writing College. I'm not sure. She's doing something in Great Barrington, even as we, we speak. Uh, Brian Slattery is arts editor for the New Haven Independent and no slouch at writing himself, uh, has written many short stories and novels and things like that. So um, I'm just uh, I'll just begin by saying that this uh, is a short story about a woman a somewhat peculiar woman, I think it's fair to say. Uh, she's working as a veterinarian at an emergency clinic uh, that is run by some kind of company. Uh, and she uh, clearly is better at interacting with animals than she is at interacting with people. That's causing herself some trouble. But there's also a mystery going on. There's three dogs that have sort of jumped away from their owners and over the edge of, a, of the same bridge uh, over a period of days. And she's interested in that. She's also interested in her father, uh, who she describes as an Anabaptist, uh, who has – this is all at the beginning of the story. I'm not telling you anything to wreck it uh, – who has uh, recently developed um, leukemia. And so all of that's on her mind and she's walking us through a sequence of a couple of days here. And so I don't know. Irene, is there a particular place you want to start here, a particular thing you want to say to get the conversation started? If not, I have a specific question. Well, one thing that I do want to say is that when I first read the story, I thought, eh, I didn't really care about it that much. Um, but I was okay to talk about it and everything. And then I, I read it again. And when I read it the second time, I decided it was like one of the most beautiful stories I've ever read in my life. Because it <laughs> so, so, something clicked about it and it really made sense to me. So I was interested in that. So that, that's my starting point. Okay. Uh, yeah, and Brian, what is your starting point? Like most short stories, I feel like they sort of rise or fall on the on the strength of the the voice. And I found the voice of the narrator like very compelling. And in in a way that it, it for me it was kind of fun because it's like 
I found myself sort of alternately charmed and then sometimes irritated in a way that actually like really kept me going. You know, like every, and like there were some sentences where I thought, oh, come on. Then there are others where I thought, that's amazing. I love that. <laughs> and um, in some ways, like the sentence by sentence surprise um, of the way that the story unfolded was like as pleasurable as, um, you know, as a lot of the other elements of the story. Like, I I mean, I always appreciate a short story that actually has a plot. And um, I really liked that, that, like, I thought the mystery was actually pretty important to keeping the story rolling, right? Like, when they mentioned they he she called them the suicide dogs at the mm. beginning of the of the story and that um you know that was enough to sort of carry me through the first half of it when i thought but tell me about the dogs tell me about the dogs you know <laughs> it's like kind of leaving me in suspense a little bit but um you know i appreciate that as much as i was occasionally annoyed by it right i i want to swing back to that but i think it's also maybe worth um noting or discussing for a moment how it is we approach short stories, uh, Irene. It's not like sitting down to read a novel. That's a much more complex getting acquainted process where a certain amount of prolonged attention and engagement is just priced in to the relationship between you and the text. I don't know. Is there a way that we can talk about how short stories are different for the reader, how a short story to be read is read differently? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm actually, I was just teaching my students about writing a short story and and thinking about what wasn't working in their short stories, which is that so often nothing happens when people try to write a story. And so in a short story, something has to happen and it has to be tight. It has to, whatever's going on in the beginning has to have something to do with what happens. So that would be my first thing. Like we don't have as much patience with it. We expect that it's going to, it's going to be going somewhere from the beginning in a way that a novel maybe will take more time or et cetera. I certainly agree with that idea. Yeah. I think that, I think that there's a quite reasonable expectation <laughs> that when you, <laughs> when you start a short story that like within the first, possibly within the first line and, you know, certainly within the first paragraph, you have a sense of the plot rolling, right? It doesn't have to be that you, you know, know exactly what's going to happen, but that it's no. not like a novel where you could have, you know, you could have an entire couple of, where people think that they can have an entire, <laughs> entire <laughs> couple of pages of, you know, here's some like scene setting and here's someone just having a cup of coffee and whatever, whatever. These are luxuries that short story writers don't have. And I find that like super fun as a reader and then occasionally as a writer when someone asks me to write one. Yeah. I mean, I would say in some ways, although I was sort of the one who suggested the short story and I, there are a lot of things about it that I like a great deal. But in a way, I think the short story slightly fails that test. But part of that, I think, is also because of the style of the narrator. The story begins, so the story is called How I Became a Vet. And so then the story begins, I guess, assuming that everybody has read the title. When I say vet, I do not mean veteran. A veteran is someone formerly in contact with death on a regular basis. A veterinarian is someone currently in contact with death on a regular basis. A part of me is moved to specify that not all veterans have been in contact with death, nor are all veterinarians so on a regular basis. But I'm older now. I know that many people experience such clarifications as weird. Weirdness does, though, generate uncommon strengths. Such was my experience with the suicide dogs who, like most of us, were not what they seemed. I mean, that's such a discursive and almost kind of boilerplate sounding beginning. It just got all these, you know, it's, it's placing all these terms and conditions on what is to come. And to me, it's ultimately one of the ways we establish this narrator as a particular kind of narrator. But, you know, Irene, it, it feels like it 
fails the slattery test a little bit. It really isn't a paragraph that necessarily, until you get to the word suicide, phrase suicide dogs, makes you want to keep going. Yeah, you know, actually, now that you mention it, I really agree with that. And I think that that is a failing. of. It's almost like she thought it was fun to make that distinction because she was talking about a veterinarian and she played with the word vet. But even when I think of the story as a whole and I go back to that paragraph, it doesn't really make me say, oh, yeah, now I know why she was talking that way. I mean, I don't know that it even really illuminates the ending for me as much as the weirdness part of it. She wanted to establish her, you know, weirdness and suicide dogs, but the whole vet thing, maybe it was just because she was a vet, you know, it was, I don't know. I I agree with you. That didn't even, in a way, it wasn't even necessary. You can argue that it's character developing, right? Mm -hmm. Which is fine. That she's, she's someone who makes these like fine distinctions between things that other people, you know, don't notice or even particularly care about necessarily, right? Yes. But, she, but that she does, you know, she's she's one of those people. And, you know, that's fair. But I agree with you. Actually, I found the first paragraph the hardest part of the story to get through. <laughs> and then <laughs> it got easier and easier as it went along. You know, like once, like the second half, I thought was like quite good. You know, then it was, then it was sort of like on its, you know, going on its own steam. And it was, it was worth going through the first half to get to the second half for sure. Right. So, I mean, I just have to uh, sort of talk about kind of an elephant in the room, although there are no actual elephants present at this veterinary <laughs> emergency clinic. But I, I just want to know from each of you, I, I found that I read this story differently from the person I live with who had just understood this character differently than I did. And I think that's good and fine and promising and interesting. I don't think it's necessarily you know, a failing of the writer that you can perceive this. So it's a first-person narration. Everything that we experience, we experience through the eyes and in the voice of this person. Irene, who ultimately is this person? What do you? What did you wind up thinking about this person? I wound up thinking that this person is a weird person who, weird from like our point of view, whoever we are, but who wants to live her weirdness and does a really good job at her job, but is misunderstood and, and suffers deeply as a result of that. See, I, I had a much more specific reading of this person, which may very well be wrong because you're much closer to how my partner saw it. But I, I think that this person is very specifically kind of non-neurotypical, uh, somebody who is probably likely, right? some somewhere on the autism spectrum, you know, and, and there are mm-hmm. so many clues dropped uh, by this, including at one point pretty early in, in the um, story, she says that her father told her she made errors of, inter- of interpretation about other people mm. and, and their emotional states and things like that. And that's clearly a problem all the way through. She's having problems at work because she can't read people as well as she can read animals. She doesn't know how to talk to them as well as she can communicate with animals about their problems. And I thought one of the interesting things about this, and I'd love to have both of you respond, to me, you know, there's this mystery of the suicide dogs, which is, as Brian says, what keeps us reading. But there's, to me also, this whole thing about this veterinary practice, this clinic that's owned by a company, and they have protocols is the word that gets used. And one of the protocols has to do with how many stars you get in online reviews. And so if you're having kind of unfortunate run-ins with patients and you get the certain number of low number of star reviews, things kick in. You have to take unpaid leave and go through sensitivity training. And she's really on the hook for all of that stuff. Um, So, yeah, well, since you just said, uh, I had a very specific reaction to that, too, but I I was wondering what yours was. So, Brian, go ahead, and then we'll 
We'll pull Irene. The idea that she was uh, not neurotypical occurred to me also when I was reading it. But if that's the case, then like then the author didn't really do anything with that. You know what I mean? Like it, it like it's like I guess one of the words for that would be it wasn't really activated in the story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's hard to know exactly what to do with it if that's actually true or not. You know, or it's it feels like a, a, a question mark. I loved the her reactions to the <laughs> to the rating system and her sort of decision of like, you know, I'm just gonna do what I'm gonna do. Like it didn't seem to really bother her you know so much that she was that she was getting the low ratings aside from the fact that it just sort of made her job a little more difficult yeah and so we have to wrap here but maybe a good place for each of you to wrap brian you know just to go back to that idea of what a short story is you know i'm right in the middle of barbara kingsolver's demon copperhead right now which is her southern adaptation modern southern adaptation of, of david copperfield and you realize that both it and the original text, make you feel all sorts of different ways. It's just this incredible amusement park ride of highs and lows and thrilling escapes and all kinds of things and just grave injustices. A short story doesn't have room for that, right? It's in a way, the way that it leaves us is a really interesting question because it's going to meet us, kind of shake our hands and then leave us. Um, and, and maybe just sort of say like when it's all done, how are you feeling? How does it leave you feeling? Not so much about it, but about everything that you just experienced. Yeah. I mean, I think that like it's it's pretty, pretty emblematic of the way I feel about many of my favorite short stories. Like so many, because they're short, because you can't do everything, you have to leave a lot of things as question marks. And I think that like a lot of short stories make that into a real strength. And it's one of the reasons that you find yourself thinking about them sometimes a lot more than you find yourself thinking about a novel. You know, they have they have a way of diving deep and coming back out again and then, you know, leaving you to sift through it for possibly the rest of your life if the short story is good enough. <laughs> it's one of the real pleasures of reading them. You know? right. So in a way, Irene, you, you answered yeah. this question at the beginning, but 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 say your answer now. How how did it leave yeah. you feeling? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, at one point she says, it might appear that I am telling you about X, but in, but instead I'm telling you about Y. And without, you know, I don't want to say what those are, but at first I believed her and then I thought, no, the story is about both of them and how they clash with each other. And that's the thing that's really sticking with me. And it's like a, a nugget of truth about her that I think, you know, that is staying with me. All right. Well, this is a wonderful conversation. I'm not surprised. I've paired the two of you up before. It always works out great. Uh, Brian Slattery and Irene Babulis, thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks. That's the show for today. Uh, I will say that every single person who was on this show was asked for a recommendation of at least one short story. All of those recommendations are gathered together on our website, ctpublic.org slash Colin, C-O-L-I-N. And other than that, we'll be back tomorrow. Read a short story. Short as a